Hi, this is Gary Meese with the case against. A continuing look at the West Memphis 3 case. We're going to continue today with Jesse Miskelly's veiled alibi. And it's a look, it, 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 this is going to be very long. It's going to take me a couple of episodes to get all through this because it's somewhat complicated. But the real, the real simple bottom line is, is Jesse Miskelly Jr. had no alibi. Uh, adding to that, Jace had no credible alibi. Damian Eccles has no credible alibi. Jason Baldwin has no credible alibi. Uh, Bob Ruff and Jim Clemente, who are grossly, either grossly misinformed or grossly committed to uh, putting out misinformation. And I'm basically lying about the case, and I'm not saying they're lying. Maybe they're just plain ignorant, but I, I don't think that's the case. But maybe they're just ignorant. But they both claim that uh, all three of these guys had alibis for the murders of Christopher Byers, Stevie Branch, and Michael Moore on May 5th, 1993. And as I've gone over again and again and again, they, they don't, those alibis do not exist. And we're going to get into some of why Miskelly doesn't have a credible alibi today. And the thing that makes it complicated with him is he had a very long list of alibi witnesses. And one or two of them might have actually been effective. Um, I think we... Didn't, I didn't listen to the end of the last episode, but I'm going to go ahead and read what Susie Brewer, his girlfriend at the time, had to say about his alibi with her. And if I'm repeating myself, so be it. She's a crucial witness in all this because she is his girlfriend. Uh, what she says doesn't jibe with what other people have to say. And I fully understand that you can expect some discrepancies in testimony between two witnesses. You should expect that. You should expect some differences. But when the differences get to be as great as the differences explained here or given here over the course of his alibi witnesses, it gets to be a, a problem that, a problem for him because he ends up not having an alibi. It's an insurmountable problem. Uh, Susie Brewer, she's 14 years old. A lot of people remember seeing her in the Paradise Lost movies. He's making, Jesse Miskelly Jr.'s making these uh, somewhat suggestive comments to Susie over the phone as he, from prison, and she's somewhat embarrassed about it. The whole thing's really inappropriate. <laughs> it's a 14-year-old child. Uh, the filmmakers left it in there uh, for their own purposes, I suppose. And I'm not really sure what it's supposed to show, except that Jesse had 
what appears to be an intimate relationship with this 14-year-old girl. He's 17. He was 18 by the time the phone call was being made. You can draw your own conclusion about how appropriate or even legal that is, but it's, you know, it's distasteful, let's put it that way, to put it, put it the nicest spin on it. Anyway, Susie gave a handwritten statement to police on June 17, 1993, that was key to Miskelly's alibi. Now, he'd been arrested two weeks before. Uh, and she was a ninth grader at Marion Junior High School. She wrote, Wednesday, 5-5-93, I saw Jesse Miskelly Jr. at 3.30 p.m. I met him at Stephanie Dollar's house after I got out of school. We watched Stephanie's kids till 4 o'clock. We left after she got home. We walked down to Johnny Hamilton's trailer for about an hour, hour and a half. We left around 5.30 p.m. because we wanted to see what was going on because... We heard the commotion because her kid was crying, and around 6.30, the police came out to Highland Park, and I went around to Stephanie's around 7 p.m. because he said he was going to Dias, Arkansas for training for wrestling. He had his mask, came to Stephanie's with it. All of Stephanie's kids wanted to try it on. He left around 7.10 or 7.20. I watched him walk down to Roger's house to ask him if he wanted to go wrestling with him. Roger is Roger Jones. I never knew Damian Eccles and Jason Baldwin on Wednesday, May 5th, 1993. And she gave the statement to uh, Officer Bill Durham in the presence of her mother, Beverly, Beverly Gefell, G-F-E-L-L. I know I read this earlier, so I'm, I'm repeating myself. Brewer testified that after she got home from school about 3.30 p.m., Quote, I went to Stephanie's, that's where Jesse was, because he was babysitting Stephanie's kids. And she got back about 4, and we went walking. We went to Johnny Hamilton's about 4.15, And she claimed she had been with Miss Kelly almost the whole afternoon. He was probably out of my sight about 15, 20 minutes. The first time he went to McNeese's to talk to him, and then I was standing in his yard when he was talking to Lewis. She said, uh, Miskelly and Lewis Hoggard talked about 6.30, though he wasn't sure of the time. You know, not exactly. And then he went back to his house to get the mask, and he was letting little kids try it on. Uh, the two little kids were Cody Romero and Justin Romero, Stephanie Dollar's children, and little Cody was the one who had been slapped by this neighbor. Uh, and she last saw Miss Kelly, Susie Brewer last saw Miss Kelly at 7 p.m. I walked to Stephanie's and I looked and I was watching him walk to Roger's house. All I know is he went to Dias. Uh, her testimony was largely consistent with her June 17th statement, but made no mention of the police call until cross-examination by the prosecution. This is where I got messed up. Under, under cross-examination, she admitted she talked with Stephanie Dollar, Johnny Hamilton, and Fred Ravel after the arrest about where Miss Kelly had been that evening. She admitted Stephanie Dollar had reminded her about the police visit, but Brewer gave no details in her testimony about the police. 
in other words, Susie gave on her own that doesn't sound like a terrible alibi. The problem is she doesn't tie it in with the claims about uh, the police call, uh, Miss Kelly being heavily involved in that. Uh, and she didn't even bring it up until the, she was asked about it on cross-examination. In other words, as an alibi, the police call was really, would have been, a, if it panned out, particularly if the police had said Miss Kelly was there, it would have been a great alibi. As it was, it was already off to a poor start since his girlfriend, who claimed she was with him all afternoon, except for a few brief talks with people, uh, you know, really failed to bring it up. The problem further with this is, as we go on, is there are going to be other people who are going to describe interactions with Jesse Muskelly Jr. Uh, that make it impossible for him to have been with Susie as she describes and with them as they describe that afternoon. Uh, there's more, more than one uh, person's going to pose this problem for the defense. And so the more stories they tell about him doing this and him doing that, all very mundane, everyday sorts of things, absolutely unnecessary to, it doesn't, none of these stories really add anything to the, this initial story. It was really just a bad use of alibi witnesses by Dan Stidham. Um, and I realize he doesn't, he didn't have complete control over what they were going to say when they got on the stand, but he, if he just simply had a better idea of what he was dealing with, he might have been able to pull this off and maybe at least engender a little doubt in the jurors' minds, as it is by overreaching uh, with a, a failed documentation and with too many witnesses, he caused the uh, alibi to collapse. It's very similar to how uh, Eccles' alibi fell apart whenever they tried to put what Ruff calls time stamps onto the alibis and the town stamps turned out to be false. You, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, he came over to my house that evening and watched TV. Kind of hard to disprove. It's another thing to say, he came over to my house that evening, watched TV, and then I went to my boyfriend's concert two days later. And you can go check and you see, well, the concert was two days later. It was two weeks later. Suddenly, the testimony doesn't look so good. And that's the sort of thing that happens repeatedly with... Uh, all these alibis, and in Miss Kelly's case, the witnesses simply contradict each other. But I'll go on. And next up was Stephanie Dollar. Uh, Stephanie, I haven't looked very, very recently, but until f certainly within the last six months, Stephanie Dollar was still listed as a primary contact for Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. in, in West Memphis. Uh, but at that time, she was a 25-year-old Highland neighbor in Highland Park Trailer Park <coughs> who had gotten to know Miss Kelly when they both lived in Lakeshore Estates three years before. And that was the time when uh, Miss Kelly and Jason Baldwin were friends there. 
Uh, Dollar was the first defense witness called, but that testimony largely just established that she lived near Miskelly and that Miskelly's hairstyle on May 5th, quote, had lines that was drawn in on the side and it was short on top, but the little thing on top was not on its head. Um, Miskelly changed his hairstyle to this rather strange looking thing you can see in the mug shot with the the lines on the side and the little top knot uh, right around May May 6th. According to Buddy, uh, Buddy Lucas, that's what went on that day whenever Miss Kelly confessed to him, which was the morning after the killings. They went and got it. He got a haircut or uh, hairstyling or whatever you would call that. Uh, Stephanie Dollar described her impressions of Miss Skelly to Detective Stan Birch on June 17, 1993. Quote, My idea of him is he's a teenage boy that um, more or less hangs around with adults but sort of acts like a child. What I mean is he plays with children, but then again he will straight up and act like an adult. I just think he was a good kid. Uh, he's never given me any trouble. He's never done anything to indicate that I should, should you know, never let him come to the house. Uh, Stephanie Dollar says that he babysat, her, babysat for her probably four times a week and said her children, quote, just say they miss Jesse and they want him to come home. Well, obviously, she has fond feelings for Jesse Muskelly, trusted him and felt close to him and st apparently still does. Uh, she had seen Miss Kelly associate, quote, with, with, quote, Jason Baldwin whenever I lived out in Lakeshore a year ago. Uh, I seen him and Jason walk to the Lakeshore store, but that is it. Her impression of Baldwin was, I thought he was a nice kid. I mean, he said, yes, ma'am, and you know that just a nice kid from what I seen of him, but I only met him maybe like once or twice. Uh, she got the same impression that Baldwin likes to give to many people, which is that he's a nice, very down-to-earth, simple sort of person. And if you actually look at what he does compared to just the impression he gives, you, it's there's a very different thing going on there. And I will just say that what you're seeing with Baldwin... Uh, to put a nice face, a nice term on it, a nice uh, face on it, would be the mask of sanity. Concerning Miskelly on May 5th, she testified, All I know is I seen him at 6.30 down here at the corner where the first street you come can come into, down at the stop sign over here, I seen him right there up in that area, he's standing by a police car. I had a report. I had to go get my report so I could remember I worked that day because I wasn't for sure it was that day. I knew I'd seen him that day, but I wasn't for sure. So I went up Marion's sheriff's office and uh, I got my report and on it, it says 050593, it says what time the call was made and what time the police officer arrived and it was 630. An incident had happened where a lady had slapped my little boy is the reason I had to call the police in the first place. 
Well, the man got mad. The woman's husband got mad because we were going to have her, his wife, arrested. And he got mad and came over there and cussing at my husband and telling husband he was going to whip his butt and all other stuff. Him and my husband got into it. I thought, you know, uh oh no, you know, because the guy had a shovel. And so I went and called the police again. When the police come, it was like a five-minute span. It was like three cop cars that came, and I believe I don't know the others because they ain't came and talked to me, but I believe one of the officers was named Stone. All right, I took Jesse up there to the car so he could hear what the lady was saying about me, and he came back and told me what she said. That's how I knew he was there around that time. Okay, that's directly from her, and she goes on to say this occurred on, quote, the 5th of May. All right, earlier that day, I had a parent-teacher conference at 3 o'clock that day, and I had to have Jesse watch the kids. I left here about 2.30. Mind you, people who talk about Jesse Miskelly as being so profoundly mentally deficient that he has the mind of a four-, five-, or six-year-old, he was babysitting children for neighbors who trusted him to, and they trusted him to do that, and he apparently was able to perform that reasonably well. Uh, a child of five or six is not capable of babysitting children, other children. They're simply not responsible enough to do that. Uh, and I'm guessing, and Stephanie goes on, and I'm guessing I got back between 3.30 and 4 because I had to have someone here to make sure my other kids got off the bus, and I had Jesse watch them b- between that time. You know, I know he was here at 6.30, supposedly I don't know the time of the death of the little boys. You know, I don't know any of that. All I know is what I have read in the paper, you know. So when I see that these little boys uh, come up missing between five and six, you know, it kind of, you know, you think, well, it had to happen around that time. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and then I know he was here at 630. It's very, very confusing. And part of what uh, Stephanie Dollar here is telling us is that, you know, she didn't really remember all this independently until she went and got a police report. And then that confirmed her memory. Nothing on the face of it really wrong with that, except it doesn't speak well to the state of her memory that she had to go to that much trouble with it. And then it seems like you would remember... Um, well, she did remember her child being slapped and having to call the police. That's not not something you would lightly forget, but you might not be able to recall the date exactly. I could see that. What did happen was she took this police report and talked to all the other neighbors and this very sort of strangely close-knit trailer park and a lot of them got on board with the idea that they were going to help Jesse out, apparently. Asked about Miss Kelly's activities after 6.30, she said, I don't know. Uh, I know he said something about going to this wrestling match, which uh, 
and some other guys go down to this old theater, and uh, I've been there, and they just practice wrestling. Uh, I know he said something about going there. Now, if he did or if he didn't, I do not know. I wasn't with him. She said, Freddie Rebel, which was actually Fred Revel, who was also known as the Rowdy Rebel, uh, told her, Miss Kelly went with him to wrestle, and Fred Ravel had some aspirations at, for being a professional wrestler, which is why he had this nickname. Now, Stan Birch is reported added, excuse me just a second. Miss Dahmer also stated that it was her husband that cut the suspect's hair in the style that he had at the time of the arrest. She did not remember the date, but was sure it was after the 5th of May. Her testimony contradicted her earlier statement on Miss Kelly's hairstyle, which was among the contradictions brought up during cross-examination. She testified that Susie and Jesse left when she got home, quote, and went down the street to Johnny Deadman's house. Others stated she that they had gone to the home of another friend, Johnny Hamilton. She testified that the two Johnnies were indeed different people. She also had gone to Deadman's. Quote, when I got there, my husband told me that a Connie Molden had slapped my son off the bicycle. And this child that was slapped off the bicycle was Cody, who was four, and was babysat some of the time by Jesse Miskelly. She called the police. Quote, it was around five. We waited for a while and they didn't show up. And then when they did, they went down to my house. And I see them leaving the trailer park. So I went back into the house and called the police and the dispatcher and told them I had seen the police leave. That I was down at Johnny Deadman's for them to come back because I was at Johnny Deadman's, not at my house. The dispatcher told me to meet them at the four-way stop sign. I told him what Connie had done, this incident that happened, that she had slapped Cody off the bicycle. Well, he left, and I just walked right back, you know, by the house, Johnny Deadman's house. Well, we were standing around, and Jesse was standing at the corner on the bicycle. And then the lady came over, her and her husband came over, came over, and her husband Melvin came over, and her husband asked my husband, her husband asked my husband if he was going to have Connie arrested. My husband said yes, and they really started arguing really bad, and I thought they were beginning to get into a fight. Connie's husband picked up a shovel, which prompted uh, Stephanie's husband, Bobby Dollar, to go to his truck and get a roller blade. Uh Stephanie goes on, I went back and called the police. Three cop cars came back within just a few minutes. I mean, it was no time at all. And they pulled up at Connie Molden's house and talked to her for a few minutes, and then they left. As for Miss Skelly, he, when the police left, he came and talked to me. While the police were there, quote, he was standing like at, all right, the street is like this, you know, it's a four-way stop, and he was standing in the street over here, and I was standing in the yard over there. After the police left, quote, he just came and told me what Connie told the police. 
It was between 5 and 6.30 because the police officer arrived at 6.30. She said she last saw Miss Kelly at 6.45. Quote, well, the officer arrived at 6.30 and then I called the other officer and it was just a matter of minutes, so it was between 6.30 and 7. Under cross-examination by Brent Davis, she was confronted by about her statements that Miss Kelly had come up to the car where the Moldens were talking to a police officer that she had taken Miss Kelly up to the car. Her response, I never took, I wasn't even there. The police officer went to Connie Molden's house. She never came to where I was at. Uh, and then she claimed to have no knowledge of the police being called to the trailer park the day before on May 4th at nearly the same time of day and that was an instance that involved Aaron Hutchison, the son of Vicki Hutchison, who was eight years old, and a very apparently a very similar sort of slapping incident involving the same Connie Molden, who apparently had a bad habit of slapping little kids. Um, she said uh, Stephanie Dollars said Miss Kelly had been very close to the cars, police cars, no more than five yards away. Quote, that was when Dollahite was here, James Dollahite. That's when I seen Jesse the first time. This was before the uh, th other three police officers arrived. She said Miss Kelly was around, quote, until after the th other three police officers left and he came and talked to me and then he left. Now, the May f um, there was a May 4th police call to Highland Trail Park. It occurred around 5.20 p.m. And Connie Alden, who was 50 years old, was named as a suspect. The complaining parent was the ubiquitous Vicki Hutchison. Uh, Aaron Hutchinson had gotten into a scuffle with Molden's son. The police report on that, the May 4th incident, not the May 5th incident, stated the complainant advised that her son and the son of the suspect got into a fight, at which time the suspect broke the boys up and then struck the victim in the face with her hand. The suspect advised that she did not hit the victim, that it was her son, uh, who was Matthew Robbins, eight years old, who struck him while they were fighting. She further advised she never hit the boy, but only broke them up. The complainant was advised to contact the CID tomorrow about obtaining a warrant for the arrest of the suspect if she so desired. It's not clear what provoked the attack on May 5th or if the May 4th and May 5th incidents were related other than the alleged assailant being Connie Molden. The testimony of Officer James Dallahite of the Crittenden County Sheriff's Department confirmed he was called out to Highland three times in quick succession around 6.30 p.m. on May 5th. Dollhite said on the first visit, I arrived on the uh, scene. I met with a complainant, a Bobby Dollar, and a Stephanie Dollar in reference to a complaint that he was making on a subject by the name of Connie Molden in reference to a battery complaint, which he alleged she pulled his hair out and pulled him off his bicycle. Now, Dollahot was the only officer present. He did not go to the Dollar trailer. He was also the only officer to answer the second complaint. But the third complaint drew to Marion police units. 
uh, Donald Hyde had submitted a handwritten statement to the West Memphis the police department at their request, stating he did not see, he had not seen Jesse Miskelly Jr. at the scene. Asked by defense attorney Dan Stidham, do you remember seeing Jesse there? Donald Hyde testified, he was not there. I'm not saying he wasn't in Highland Trailer Park. I'm just saying he was not where I was. And clarifying call and arrival times, Dalahite said he received a call at 6.17, arriving at 6.27. He met with the dollars at a stop sign. He did not go to the dollar home. He did not see Miss Kelly. The only parties present were himself and Bobby and Stephanie Dollar. He received his second call at 6.31, when he again did not see Miss Kelly with whom he was familiar. He had known the family for over 20 years. On the second call, it was myself, Connie Molden, and several youngsters, ages up three to maybe eight. The third call came at 6.43. Dalahite arrived at 6.46, along with Marion officers Joe McCafferty and Jason Oliver. Dalahite did not see Miss Skelly on the third call. Dalahite testified it was myself, Connie Molden, her husband, uh, her children, uh, several other neighborhood children, but not Miss Skelly. Called by the defense, who attempted unsuccessfully to cast doubt on his memory and used an inaccurate map to question him, Dalahite's testimony bolstered the prosecution's case and cast doubt on all those who claimed to see Miss Skelly at the police calls. Called back again February 3rd by the prosecution, Dalahite repeated his testimony that he did not see Miss Kelly on any of his three visits to the trailer park. <laughs> now, the the guy who just destroys the police, the officer who destroys the police calls uh, alibi or helps destroy it, because we're going to get into the other officers testifying in just a second, was called originally by the defense. And that speaks to the quality of defense that uh, speaks to, excuse me just a second, speaks to the quality of the defense that Miss Kelly was receiving from the esteemed Dan Stidham. Called by the prosecution, Marion Police Department, Corporal Joe McCafferty, a 21-year veteran, testified that, not counting officers, there were about six people on the scene, including Deadman, Johnny Deadman, and there were some and quote, and there were some young children, some young ladies standing there. Uh, the children aged ranged from early teens to younger. As for Miss Kelly, I don't recall seeing him when I was there. Testifying immediately after McCafferty, Patrolman Jason Oliver of the Marion Police Department said quote, seven or eight, unquote, people were on the scene, not counting officers. Like Dalahite and McCafferty, Oliver was familiar with Miskelly prior to May 5th. He did not see Miskelly at the scene. Testimony of the three officers effectively destroyed claims that Miskelly was at the scene of the police calls. And that's all I'm going to read for today. That's all I'm going to talk about for today. As you can see, it's uh, I'm 
going over this with more fine detail probably than it's absolutely necessary. You know, it's uh, we could we could say just you know there were three three police officers testified uh, after Jesse Miskelly had some friends that tried to establish these police calls. The defense three police officers test or three law enforcement officers testified uh, that he was not at the scene, effectively negating that alibi. But I you know I want to get. Into, to be somewhat granular and get into the finer details of this, realizing that even at the gran- the more granular we get, the less imperfect it gets in many ways. However, what is perfect is that none of these officers said they saw Miskelly at the scene. It also underlines a point that needs to be made again, which is that Stephanie Dollar trusted Miss Skelly to babysit her children, which doesn't indicate a, a great, a, either it's either very bad judgment or maybe he didn't present himself as being as mentally deficient as people claim he is. And further, that she used him to gather information and even seemingly negotiate on some level with about well, concerning this police call that she had trusted, trusted him uh, intellectually and emotionally to be able to navigate this uh, mo- emotionally fraught situation with two men who were going, seemed like they're about to go at each other with a shovel and some other implement. So uh, with, of course, the police were there to break that up at that point, and it didn't get to that level. But uh, where they actually were using it on each other, they certainly, the threats were certainly there. The point being is that, you know, Miskelly was not this uh, passive uh, young young man who had the mind of a six-year-old, didn't know what he was doing, really wasn't able to navigate uh, any kind of social situations whatsoever. He had a girlfriend. He's doing all this stuff with, with uh, Stephanie Dollar. Uh, he's not, he's not what, he's not smart. He's not smart at all. He's on the low end of normal, but he's not mentally retarded. And he's not so deficient mentally that he couldn't function well enough to, uh, participate in the killings and to confess to the crimes. And, that, you know, to me, that seems self-evident, but I guess I've got to spell it out. Anyway, that's all from me. This was episode 50 of The Case Against. I encourage you to check my books out at Amazon, uh, Blood on Black and Where the Monsters Go, and the combined, revised, condensed version called The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers. Um, it's very readable. It's not as detailed as this. Uh, it still has a lot of detail. And it's a little more, particularly for a single volume, it's more affordable than the than buying the two other volumes. If you, want, if you really want to go in for completeness, then the two volumes is what I would suggest. And I don't think, despite 
you can see how sometimes this is, gets to be somewhat redundant. I don't think it's really a, a really slow read, despite the size. I think it's like 800 pages. I don't think it's a really terrible slow read, uh, unless you're just simply not interested in the case. Uh, this the stuff with Miskelly, and there's a few other things that really uh, the stuff with the phone call girls and going through their various sorting out the, the alibis. Those two things. Or get to be a little, perhaps a little tedious just simply because we're we're reiterating they're they're saying the same things over and over and over and over again, or not saying the same things over and over and over again. Anyway, uh, stay well. You don't have. I'm fortunate. I certainly don't have to stay indoors, and I I'm about to go take a nice walk on a beautiful day here. Hopefully you can do something like that while this uh, uh, coronavirus uh, continues to be a concern. Uh, and I will be back with you again soon. Uh, I can't say exactly when, but it's not going to be that long. Maybe tomorrow, maybe later, probably later in the week, certainly. Uh, and I will talk to you then. Bye.